Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash PKT. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi. Welcome to this Peer Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual education symposium on redefining balance in hemophilia. Can we restore hemostasis by inhibiting anticoagulation? My name is Johnny Masangu. I am a hematologist based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and it is my pleasure to welcome you together with my uh, fellow uh, eminent faculties. This is uh, today's uh, agenda, uh, redefining balance in hemophilia, can you restore hemostasis? Uh, we are going to, following this very short welcome and introduction, um, I am going to uh, invite Dr. Lauren Frenzel uh, to take you through a reminder of the coagulation cascade and then I'll come in um, with the, the rationale for rebalancing therapies. And then uh, Dr. Christopher Walsh will take you through uh, how can we interpret the clinical data. And then the final part of this symposium will be an interactive panel discussion, which will then lead to the end. With that introduction, it is now my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Laurent Frenz, who will take you through the coagulation cascade and where the rebalancing agents are acting. Over to you, Dr. Frenza. Good morning, uh, everyone. Um, thank you, uh, Professor Marango, for this kind introduction. And today, we're talking about uh, analyzing a discrete scale about coagulation cascade, pneumophilia, and the current treatment uh, strategy. So we are quick move on uh, to the coagulation cascade in hemophilia. And just to resume uh, this uh, cascade, uh, we know that actually in a physiological point of view, we have three steps uh, for this uh, coagulation cascade. We have the initiation, amplification, and the propagation, as you can see on the right of the slide, about trendin generation. And uh, if you look at uh, uh, the, the, the pink uh, line, with hemophilia patient, we see that amplification doesn't occur very uh, well. Why? Because most um, there is a most coagulation factor um, in the amplification uh, is probably the factor eight and the factor nine, as you can see in the middle uh, of uh, the of the of the slide. And uh, that's why probably hemophilia A or hemophilia B. Due to the lack of factor eight and factor nine, we can see a disrupt of the completion of the coagulation cascade, resulting in blood clots that form more slowly and that do not form at all for severe patients. And so patients uh, are going to bleed and the level of frequency of bleeding depends on the severity of the disorder. And uh, bleed occur mainly in the muscle and other joint. We can see that uh, the most the, the, the most common complication in hemophilia patient is about hemophilic arthropathy. And hemophilic arthropathy is directly as a consequence of clinical and subclinical hemarthrosis. 
because uh, this hematrosis uh, can lead to the development of uh, chronic synovitis, chronic synovitis that induce some inflammatory directly, directly inside of the joint. And this inflammatory um, background uh, leads to a complete destruction of uh, the, uh, the joint for, for patient. And that's why uh, what we need to, to do for hemophilia patient is to stop the repeated bleeding. And if we can stop it, uh, we can avoid the um, synovitis. And if we avoid synovitis, we can protect the joint of the patient. The question now is how we can stop joint bleed. We have different options. Uh, we have different, actually, we have different options. We have uh, injection of factor, standard alpha uh, or extensor alpha. We have some non-factor therapy. And uh, now we have also possibility uh, to treat patients with gene therapy. And uh, the goals of the different treatment, it's not the same, as you can see, with different level of protection, uh, if you want a ideal prophylaxis through pure, uh, for example. If we start with the older one uh, about factor replacement uh, therapy and the standard half-life, maybe all of you know uh, this paper from uh, the Monken Johnson team about the efficacy uh, of prophylaxis for patients. Of course, patients who are injected twice or third time uh, a week the, the injection are better protection uh, for the for the joint health, for example, they are less bleeds, of course. But uh, this kind of treatment have some limitation. Some limitation because some patients um, are, are still expected some micro bleeds, and someone, some other uh, will uh, expect some inhibitor development. And um, the observation uh, with uh, the repeat intravenous injection every two days or uh, twice weekly, it's very hard for the, for the patient. And uh, we know now, uh, if we look uh, about 10, 20 or 30 years for this patient who are on a, um, on a correct profit with this uh, factor replacement, we uh, can observe that uh, the joint continue to be destroyed uh, after uh, a long time. And if we um, look at the right of the uh, of this slide and a more recently publication with the MRI uh, use of the uh, of the joint, we can see that some patients who are only uh, 18 years, uh, one third more than one third of, of this patient who are early good profit, uh, begin uh, begin to have some uh, joint uh, problems and uh, joint abnormality that we can see on the MRI. So we need other treatment. Of course, we need the other treatment, but how we can do that? We can do that to uh, extend the half-life of the treatment. We can do that uh, for the factor nine pegylation fusion, for example, and we try to do that with uh, with the factor eight. We have a new treatment uh, called B001, uh, showed some very interesting results. But now we have no joint health uh, data about uh, this extra, uh, extra uh, half-life treatment. And patients with inhibitor are still excluded. And the patient still need uh, in, uh, intravenous injection, at least weekly, but it still need intravenous injection. And for some patients, it could be very difficult uh, to do that. So now, uh, maybe it's five years ago, 
another kind of treatment appear uh, in the uh, in the hemophilia uh, in the hemophilia field about uh, what we call a non-factor replacement therapy. And uh, the only who are actually uh, licensed, it's uh, the emicizumab. Emicizumab is a, a monoclonal antibody who binds uh, for the one on the part on the factor 10 and the other part of the factor 9. It's only uh, for hemophiliac patient, but uh, it's a really good treatment. Why? Because we uh, we uh, we have some study, uh, the AVEN program, uh, still published uh, uh, in some years, that we can see effectively this kind of treatment is really uh, efficient for patient uh, about uh, bleeding and uh, joint bleeding. But um, we currently we don't have any uh, joint uh, data uh, with uh, patient under emicizumab profit. Patient with hemophilia B, of course, uh, are excluded. And patient with hemophilia, uh, we can just partially recover the hemostatic uh, function. Uh, we uh, transform uh, an hemophilia, a severe hemophilia A on a mild hemophilia A. And some patients keep an hemorrhage phenotype, even as if, if they are, uh, are on emicizumab profi. Some patients develop anti-drugs, anti-emicizumab, and uh, we can observe in the, 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 some studies with emicizumab, some traumatic events. So um, what we have uh, now uh, as another option for treatment for the hemophilia patient, we have, of, co of course, gene therapy. Gene therapy is different because the patient uh, are expecting something different uh, with uh, with the gene therapy. They are expected to be pure because uh, we hope to have uh, physiological levels of uh, hemo hemostatic, uh, hemostatic uh, levels, uh, hemostatic function. Um, and the patient uh, with only one injection could be uh, quite for a long time. That's the patient are expected. But in really, uh, and we have now some uh, phase three study uh, with gene therapy in hemophilia for hemophilia patient. On the left of the slide, you can see uh, for the hemophilia uh, hemophilia, uh, hemophilia A patient uh, and and the, for the hemophilia B patient. Of course, uh, it works. It really works. We can uh, show uh, strictly uh, the difference between uh, joint bleeding, joint bleed uh, overall, but also in uh, joint bleeding. But we have a lot of limitation uh, with the gene therapy. And as you can see, just on the right of the of the of the slide, it's about um, a, um, a short study from the Belgian team uh, with um, with Cedric Hermans who asked. Uh, in uh, the center, our uh, uh, patient, if they are really, uh, uh, see if they really want to do uh, gene therapy. And about maybe just less than 100 patients, if you look at the uh, below uh, the, the, the screen, you can see only only 8% of patients could really have, uh, could really uh, get uh, gene therapy. Why? Because there are a lot of limitations of gene therapy. For example, patients with inhibitor actually are excluded or pre-existing AAV antibody also. Uh, patients with liver uh, disease, with cancer, joints uh, are also excluded as well. Patient fail is very important because it's gene therapy. Patients have uh, fears about uh, uh, some concert or about uh, this kind of uh, of issue with uh, with the uh, gene therapy about thrombolytic events because uh, in some case with some study 
some patients um, experience a very higher dose, uh, uh, have very higher levels of uh, coagulation factor. And uh, when we start our gene therapy, we ask the patient to know alcohol contribution during the initial months and to do some uh, twice weekly biological sample to monitor uh, the uh, the life. So, in conclusion, uh, for this first part, uh, and I want to conclude with a simple question: Do we still need alternative treatment for hemophilia patient uh, in 2023? My answer, but I'm not I'm not alone, of course. But my answer is, of course, yes, because we have some patients who can have uh, this uh, treatment. For example, hemophilia B with inhibitors. It's a really a cancer, really issue with uh, with this patient. Some patients uh, still uh, get, uh, get some bleed phenotype uh, with current prophylaxis. We have some side effects, loss of efficacy with current treatment, clearly. And we have very uh, low data, very uh, few data about the joint health and the new treatment as emicizumab, uh, for example. And then we can uh, imagine if we can provide uh, factor 8, factor 9, or emicizumab, we can also uh, restore uh, nemostatic uh, activity uh, by targeting uh, the anticoagulant, natural anticoagulant, like anti-TFPI or anti-thrombin-3, for example. And so it's my pleasure now to uh, introduce uh, Professor Malangu uh, about this uh, new kind of treatment for hemophilia patients. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you, uh, Dr. Franzel, and it is now my turn to take you through the rationale for rebalancing therapies. We have been lucky in the hemophilia community to see this unprecedented evolution of the therapeutic landscape, starting with blood and blood products, and this, uh, of course, culminated with the formulation of the plasma-derived uh, clotting factor concentrate in the 1970s. And with the advent of DNA technology, uh, we welcomed the uh, first use of recombinant clotting factor concentrates and more recently uh, the recombinant clotting factor concentrates with improved pharmacokinetics. Uh, this is all used uh, for replacement therapy in hemophilia. The, the reality with uh, the replacement therapy is that it has a number of intrinsic limitations. And I've listed three of those here. The first one is that it is associated in the context of hemophilia with up to 30% immunogenicity. The second limitation is that uh, it imposes um, a treatment burden and, and, of course, poor adherence because it has to be given uh, intravenously. And then the third limitation is that uh, it is characterized by peaks and troughs uh, one is not able to maintain adequate factor level to protect patients from bleeding at all times. It is in this context that non-factor therapies have evolved in order to address uh, most of these unmet needs. Uh, to remind you that the non-factor therapies, uh, in fact, uh, fall into four categories. The first one is the factor eight mimetics. Uh, this is uh, uh, the prototype being emisuzumab, uh, and of course, more recently, my mate. Emisuzumab has completed a number of phase three studies, and um, my mate has just completed the, the, the phase three studies, uh, and in fact, they are about to be published. 
The antithrombin is the second category. The prototype is vitricerin. It has completed at least two phase three studies. The anti-TFPI monoclonal antibodies, uh, which are progressing in the clinical setting, are concizumab and mestacimab, uh, which have completed phase two and phase three studies, respectively. As we know, uh, the Bay 109 was terminated and the MG1313 is currently ongoing in the phase one study. And then the final category is the anti activated protein C, the serpent PC, uh, which is currently in the phase one study. And I want to take you through the mechanism of action of the factor eight mimetics. Just to remind you that um, the factor eight is an important uh, cofactor that brings together activated factor nine together with factor 10. And the complex that is formed is the tennis complex uh, which obviously forms the prothrombinase complex leading to clot formation uh, during the uh, activation of coagulation. In the absence of factor eight, uh, the bispecific monoclonal antibody performs exactly the same function as factor eight, leading to the formation of the tenase complex and, of course, the downstream effect being thrombin generation and clot formation. What are some of the advantages of the uh, factor eight mimetics? I've listed here a few of those. Uh, they bridge the activated factor 9 and factor 10 to form a tenase complex and therefore restore the function of the missing factor 8. They have no structural homology to factor 8 and therefore they are not inhibited by neutralizing antibodies directed against factor 8. And finally, they are administered subcutaneously, which takes away uh, the high treatment burden associated with intravenous uh, administration that is required uh, for replacement therapy. If one moves on to the anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitor, the mechanism of action uh, is relatively straightforward. Just to remind you that in normal hemostasis, uh, upon activation of hemostasis, you have activated factor 7, uh, which associates with tissue factor. Together with factor 10, uh, they form a complex, which complex then is able to generate thrombin. The role of tissue factor pathway is to bind to activated factor 10, uh, therefore limiting the amount of thrombin generated and therefore clot formation bringing balance into uh, the space of a bleeding individual or a clotting individual. And what the monoclonal antibody does, uh, it blocks the K2 domain of the tissue factor pathway and therefore allowing clot formation uninhibited in the context of uh, patients with uh, bleeding diathesis such as uh, hemophilia. The molecules I've alluded to, they are concizumab and mestazumab uh, that are currently progressing. And I'm giving here an overview uh, of the uh, features. Uh, in fact, uh, two of these uh, molecules, uh, the concizumab and the MG1313, they are IgG subtype. The mestazumab is an IgG1. Uh, bevovacimab is an IgG2. Uh, all of them bind to the K2 domain except for uh, the uh, now terminated uh, program on the Bayer program. Uh, in fact, uh, they have all completed phase one uh, except for the uh, 
MG triple one three, whose phase one is still ongoing. And in fact, some of them have completed phase two, and that is the consensus map and the mistakes map. And you'll hear more about the phase two data from these clinical trials. Just want to highlight here the advantages of anti-tissue factor pathway therapies, which are many. They are given subcutaneously. They may offer consistent pharmacokinetics. They are suitable for both inhibitor and non-inhibitor patients. And of course, they can treat both hemophilia A and hemophilia B. Moving on to uh, the siRNA therapies, uh, the rationale for their use is that in the absence of factor eight or factor nine, uh, in the presence of antithrombin, uh, one is unable to generate cut. And what infitusiren, which is a prototype uh, anti-srna, uh, uh, it will block antithrombin via the activator 10 and thrombin, resulting, of course, in clot formation. And the therapeutic hypothesis is to lower the antithrombin level, leading, of course, to clot formation, which is now beyond the proof of concept. The uh, anti-TFPI, they, they, they've got a number of, uh, the, the non-factor therapies have got a number of uh, advantages and disadvantages. And, and I've listed here some of the advantages. They are given subcutaneously. They've got relatively long biological half-lives. They lack immunogenicity, and they manage patients with hemophilia A with or without inhibitors. The potential disadvantages is that uh, some of them are associated with injection site reactions, which happen to be uh, the most common adverse events when you're using these drugs. Uh, it is possible that there may be delayed exposure to replacement therapy, and therefore patients may not uh, be able to get enough exposure and not to be able to develop uh, immunogenicity against the use of replacement therapy. And uh, the last disadvantage is that they may be used for prophylaxis only, but not for the treatment of bleeds. So if I were to summarize uh, the rationale for rebalancing agents, I've pointed out the unmet needs. There are four classes of rebalancing uh, non-factor therapies that have evolved to address these unmet needs. And I've taken you through the rationale for their use of uh, these rebalancing agents. And these, in fact, have progressed beyond proof of concept. And many have com com completed a number of clinical trial uh, development programs. Uh, rebalancing agents have got several advantages over replacement therapies, this include consistent hemostatic cover, reduced treatment burden, and of course, lack of immunogenicity. In my view, all indications suggest that the rebalancing agents may become the standard of care in the management of patients uh, with hemophilia. Thank you very much. Um, it is now my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Christopher Walsh, who is going to take you through how can we interpret the safety and efficacy results of the use of rebalancing agents. Over to you, uh, Dr. Walsh. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to uh, present the last in this series uh, on uh, the current clinical data for uh, rebalancing therapies in, in hemophilia. Um, the hypothesis put forward many years ago was that 
in the setting of hemophilia where factor levels are low, that if one reduced uh, the uh, anticoagulant uh, controlling uh, proteins such as TFPI, antithrombin uh, 3 protein CNS, one could balance uh, uh, the uh, two components of hemostasis and allow for uh, increased thrombin generation and and subsequently uh, fibrin formation. And that's shown on on this slide. Um, As of now, there are at least uh, four drugs currently in clinical trial um, uh, that are uh, using this this hypothesis, and they are listed here. The first is fetuzaran, which is an um, interesting drug. It's a small inhibitory RNA that is targeting the messenger uh, RNA of uh, antithrombin-3. Uh, concizumab is a, a monoclonal antibody that binds and inactivates tissue factor pathway inhibitor, as does marstacumab, which interestingly bind to the same or similar domain on TFPI. And finally, a unique protein. It's a modified uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin. It's a protease or serpin that targets specifically activated protein C. Um, In the last column here, all these studies look at both hemophilia A and B patients with and without inhibitors. So they're uh, a very... um, even though the mechanisms, uh, the drugs that are used are quite different, uh, the, the actual uh, uh, outcome in patients uh, very similar. It's all interesting to note that these are all subcutaneously uh, delivered drugs. Fetuzran is uh, given weekly. Concizumab is daily. Marstacumab is weekly. And I believe Serpent PC is every two weeks. So sub-Q drugs for all uh, hemophilia A and B patients. Uh, study design is very straightforward. It's, uh, this is, it just shows that uh, the uh, cohorts are compared on drug to those um, who are on demand, whether it's bypassing agents or factor. And <clears throat> these are randomized. Uh, the primary endpoints are annual bleed rate and secondary the dairy endpoints are listed, uh, spontaneous joint ABRs, quality of life, etc. Uh, we'll first look at Fertuzaran and the f- uh, last column in phase three uh, uh, data that's available is that heme, and a- heme A and B patients without inhibitors, the ABRs are quite good. Um, mean uh, ABRs are essentially zero um, uh in heme and about two, two to three for heme B, but the median, combined median ABR is zero. Uh, for those patients, uh, who are on bypassing, uh, agents, those have inhibitors, excellent data with ABR mean is 1.7. And again, median is, is zero. The safety, as we'll get into uh, in a bit more detail, is that there were some elevated ALTs, cholecystitis, cholelithiasis, um, and no thrombotic events, which would be uh, might be expected, due to um, phase two uh, studies that showed there were 
significant uh, thrombosis, one leading to death that actually uh, halted the study and, and engendered a risk mitigation where uh, measurements of AT3 and uh, underlying uh, risk for thrombosis um, uh, had to be factored uh, back into the study. And we'll get into that in a little bit later. Um, for concizumab, this is, again, the monoclonal antibody. This is given uh, sub-Q daily. Results are excellent, shown in the last uh, uh, uh column. ABRs were less than one. Median ABR was uh, zero in patients with inhibitors. Uh, to my knowledge, though, patients without inhibitors uh, has yet been reported. Um, again, in this study, there was uh, there were three uh, thrombotic events, both venous and arterial. This uh, caused a halt to the study and uh, Drug assays, ELISAs to the drug were uh, instituted, uh, defining toxic doses were uh, defined, and underlying uh, risks for thrombosis uh, uh, were, again, uh, required for uh, furtherment of the study. There were two deaths, but thought to be unrelated to the study drug. Marstacumab, again, uh, similar to concizumab, this is now... I believe a week, weekly uh, sub-Q uh, event showed in phase two studies, no thrombosis, an excellent bleed rate reduction. The phase three data is to be presented at ISTH in just a, uh, shortly. And to date, as far as I'm aware, there's been no thrombotic events. This may be due to the fact that um, the protocol excluded uh, patients with either genetic or non-genetic risk for uh, thrombosis. Essentially, both HEMA and B patients with and without inhibitors, if one looks at the median um, ABR on the final row here, it ranges anywhere from essentially zero to two, which is excellent. Um, and finally, the last drug we'll look at is the Serpent PC, uh, where these are still in the phase, phase two drug finding mode. The study looked at either giving, uh, the drug either, um, uh, 60 milligrams for Q4 weeks or 1.2 milligrams per kilogram Q2 weeks. And one sees, uh, in the data here that at least, uh, what they're finding is that the Q2 uh, week approach seemed to give a much better ABR in both patients, heme, and, heme A and B, with and without uh, inhibitor, followed out to uh, uh, at least six months. Um, importantly, safety-wise, there was no elevation of D-dimer and no thrombotic events, but the numbers of patients, as you can imagine, was quite low. Um, once again, elevated ALTs, uh, liver function tests were uh, transient or uh, minimally elevated, and uh, that was the major uh, safety finding. So uh, just to reiterate in terms of safety in, in this class of drugs, where the balance between uh, coagulants and anticoagulants could be a, fi a fine, fine point that would have to be fine-tuned for each one of these drugs, for Fertuzaran, there were roughly five thrombotic events in over 260 patients tested. It's about a 2% uh, 
um, thrombotic risk. And so the FDA has required the company to repeat this using their dose, uh, their risk mitigation scheme. And, um, the, the, all the patients with thrombosis either had very low AT3 levels, less than 10%, or had AT3 levels between 10 and 20% that had concomitant factor or bypassing use. Uh, for both concizumab, um, arterial and venous um, uh, thrombosis occurred in a small number of patients. There were no deaths, but again, risk mitigation in terms of ELISA assays that were developed to measure levels that were thought to be uh, in the safe uh, safe region and uh, underlying risk for thrombotic disease, i.e. cancer, um, uh, you can imagine genetic risk, et cetera, were required. Interestingly, the latter two, Marstacumab and Serpent PC, no thrombotic risks that I'm aware of have been reported. Uh, Serpent PC, again, is... Uh, not the, uh, is, is, uh, is only in phase two. Um, Marstacumab will be presented in their phase three d- data will be presented. And in some instances, I haven't mentioned, uh, Serpent PC, there were non-neutralizing antibodies, uh, to concizumab. There were some, uh, anti-drug antibodies that were, uh, noted. So, uh, in summary, hemostatic rebalancing, uh, drugs that can target TFPI, AT3, and ProTC exist. They work uh, very well. They are all subcutaneously given. They work for uh, all patients with hemophilia A with and without inhibitors. And However, the risk for thrombosis requires risk mitigation for thrombosis um, be required for these drugs. And with that, I thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Um, it is now my pleasure to welcome you to this question and answer session. And um, maybe I could uh, warm up and, and start asking uh, specific questions here. And, and I've got already a few questions that are in the Q&A. Uh, and I'm going to read this and perhaps uh, ask uh, my fellow faculty members to try and, and answer them. Um, and the first question actually is, uh, what precautions do we need to take for tooth extraction or any other oral surgery in patients with hemophilia? Maybe I could ask uh, Dr. Welch to to attempt to answer that question. Um, it's a good question. Um, um, reality strikes. Um, yeah. As far as I'm aware, the uh, uh, rebalancing drugs that we've discussed, I have not seen data uh, on their use in the setting of either minor, a minor or major surgery. So um, uh, that's an open question. Um, obviously, the, uh, the use of, uh, of anti-fibrinolytics or uh, the addition of factor bypassing agents, uh, what have you, given the patient type, um, probably will need to be uh, uh, those studies will need to be performed and uh, published. Thank you very much. And, and then you're absolutely right. Um, now the data around uh, no surgery is still uh, evolving uh, no, for most of these uh, non-replacement therapies. I've got a second question here. And um, 
what do you think will be the future of rebalancing agents in the pediatric settings of uh, no, previously untreated patients? Um, uh, Dr. Frenzel, um, do, do you have, I, I know that in your concluding remarks, you ask an important question. Uh, will the replacement therapy still be there? And in fact, your answer was yes, it will still be there. But what, what, what do you think is the future of rebalancing agents in pediatric settings of previously untreated patients? Yes, yes, of course. It, I think it's a difficult question because we don't have, um, any data, uh, uh, currently, but, um, for example, for some patient with um, hemophilia B with inhibitor, I think we could treat uh, this uh, patient and pediatric patient with this kind of treatment. But now we need some, we need more data to answer uh, to answer to this uh, question. I think absolutely, and you're right. The data is not there as yet, but it is going to be evolving over time. We've got an interesting question here. How do you individualize treatment for elderly patients with mild hypophilia phenotype? And maybe I could take this question, and of course, the two of you could add. Uh, we, we do know that the primary indications for these uh, novel therapies has been uh, those patients with unmet need, severe bleeding phenotype. The ALT bleeding phenotype has been a secondary uh, indication, and in fact, there is now a uh, precedence that has been established with the effectiveness, where we do know there is a study that has just been completed that showed that in the context of mild bleeding phenotype, it is just as efficacious and as uh, well, safe as when it is used in severe hemophilia phenotype. And, and of course, the elderly the population uh, is is a very important component evaluation of this uh, no uh, drugs. Uh, we have very limited data showing that uh, most of these, in fact, are used in the elderly. There is some real world data, for example, from Israel uh, that showed that it is safe when one is using to, uh, on patients who are sixty uh, years old and above. Uh, the other novel therapies have yet to evaluate the safety and efficacy in that population. And then we've got a scenario here, and, and it's a very interesting scenario. A 62-year-old patient with multimophilia A presented with abdominal pain and emesis. The lab, the lab test revealed a factor 8 level of 2%. Abdominal CT scan ruled out acute pancreatitis, but revealed an irregular and locally circular thrombosis, 3 to 5 millimeter thick, virtually uh, in the entire length of the abdominal iota. How do you manage this patient? Uh, will you start with intermediate dose, low molecular weight, heparin? Maybe Chris, you could come in here. You, you gave us the, the update on the clinical data. Uh, that's an unusual case. Um, I... Uh, certainly, um, I'd have to think about that offhand. Uh, obviously, if a patient, if this was uh, 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 inherited or is this an acquired, this isn't a child, I assume. Um, so I don't treat kids, but uh, even if this was an adult, that would be uh, the consideration of an acquired or an, an, an inherited uh, hemophilia with a clot is um, very unusual. Uh, 
to give patients heparin would be uh, very uh, uh, very interesting um, uh, event that I don't think I would be comfortable with. Uh, the question is whether thrombectomy, something like that, in a large vessel could be performed. Um, but um, s- certainly one doesn't want to be faced uh, in a hemophilia case, which you're uh, using, um, w- with a clot. And uh, that's one of the considerations of all these rebalancing drugs is that um, we think we're uh, we're only as smart as we are. Um, the data for some of the trials, as I outlined, has already demonstrated that um, there are limits to how what we think we could do with rebalancing, and so one has to be very careful when uh, use uses those kind of types uh, these types of drugs in the populations from children to um, uh, to the elderly with. Uh, comorbidities, uh, that has to be uh, carefully thought about when uh, using uh, any of these drugs, I, I think. No, thanks, Chris. Um, no, that is obviously a, a, a difficult case. Um, you know, managing bleeding and, and potentially thrombosis in the same patient is always a challenge in, in our field of hematology. But uh, I agree with you completely. Uh, one, one will probably have to get... Um, some more information before the intervention in this particular patient. There is another uh, question here, um, and the question is, uh, what is the physical activity recommendation which the patients are allowed to undertake when they are on replacement therapy? Um, maybe at Dr. Francel, if you don't mind, to come in and give us your thought. Yes, uh, I think it's very important to, uh, to encourage you uh, to propose uh, physical activity for all patients, uh, all patients, um, even if they are on a non prophylaxis with, um, substitution, with factor substitution. But I think it's really important. What, what kind of sport, uh, can you propose? It's, I think it's difficult to, to answer to have some, uh, some kind of guidance or guidelines for all patients. I think it's different from, uh, each one, but it's, in my opinion, um, and I think it's that I'm not the, the, the only to think that, but it's very important to uh, encourage to, uh, to ask to the patient to do some physical activity, like walking, for example. Uh, it's a really good uh, physical activity. Thank you very much. And unfortunately, we are, uh, have run out of time. And um, as always, uh, it remains for me to thank uh, all of you for sending these exciting questions. And it has been an absolute pleasure uh, you no, know, to be part of this uh, you no know, symposium on rebalancing agents, and it remains for me to thank uh, Dr. Francel and Dr. Walsh um, for their contribution to this. Uh, thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the EHA uh, Congress. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.